growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Cheat Code. Josh Wagner, Justin Gray, and Sean Kester all along for another, are we still calling these interludes, gentlemen? I guess. Okay. I thought of a better term for it. All right. Well, another interlude. <laughs> the the but Magic gonna, Unicorn Hour? Yeah. But we're going to interlude the interlude, I believe, on this one. So instead of just randomly talking about partnerships, we're still going to talk about partnerships. But if you didn't see it, the three of us spoke at the Nearbound Summit this week, which was a virtual event hosted by, is that, is their company called Nearbound or is it Reveal or what's the story? Yeah, the, the, like the media arm is is Nearbound and, you know, the software is Reveal, but, you know, next week everything will be called something different anyway. All right, got it. So we put on a killer presentation. We were only on for 25 minutes. Naturally, there were dozens of questions that we couldn't get to because we were so engaging as well because never one can i just throw in a huge gripe like why can the presenter never see the damn video or the chat window in any of these like like i mean zoom's pretty good about it but of course we weren't using zoom but yeah so we definitely went way over on our time well it'd be too easy it wouldn't it wouldn't propose a challenge correct i'd be a challenge in my life yeah. You were presenting the deck. Sean and I were sitting there watching. I saw the hook come in. We were over. We couldn't get the questions. So our idea was to use this podcast time to field the questions that we weren't able to get to during the summit. Now, I'm sure all of the sessions are up available on the Nearbound website. I'm sure you can get ours and lots of other people. So go check that out, nearbound.com. It was a free event. So please do that. But for this time together, we're going to go through all the different questions that we weren't able to get to. And there's some really good stuff in there. So if the person's name is there, we'll certainly call them out. But uh, maybe we just get started. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll top in. All right. So this one's interesting. Uh, first one coming from a gentleman named Dale Shepard. And we do run into this in our portfolio quite frequently. What's your take on fractional CROs to fill the leadership gap where a VC firm can't support this? And I'm guessing they're maybe specifically speaking about a VC firm like us that's very hands-on, but regardless, what do we think about fractional CROs in early stage startups? Yeah, I mean, this came on the the heels of kind of, I think, uh, us discussing a role that we fill in a lot of our, our portcos uh, in terms of like early sales management, kind of CRO, VP of sales type, type role. And I do, like, it also opens the door, and I think we've alluded to this before, but like every founder that I've spoken to, like naturally talks about their first seller as VP of sales. And I think that's largely because they're trying to punch them up their weight class and get someone yeah. that, you know, is, is is willing to take a shot on on a very early stage organization. They want to reward them with title. But like, that's such a, I, number one, like to squarely answer the question, at least from my perspective, like it's not possible and, and often like very rarely a good fit, you know, whether it's fractional, whether it's, uh, organic W2, if they're not carrying a bag and if that isn't their primary role, right? Like just to interject a layer of sales management into that, I think it's difficult from a financial perspective for an organization, because if you're truly not selling, 
like that is a massive expense. I don't, you know, even in a fractional uh, scenario, I don't run into a lot of people that like are willing to do that for a low cost point. Uh, and so I, you know, again, that's like part of the thesis that we have. And I'm, I'm I went to look up. Yeah, so Dale is a fractional CRO, so he's not going to like my answer. But <laughs> you know, like the, the, the I, I just think it's a it's an economic challenge and it's a, a focus challenge. Like obviously, you want to bring sales management, you want to up level the sales motion that you're doing. Oftentimes, like you're creating frameworks and tools, and you're honing the message of that organization, and that's difficult to push down into an AE's lap, but augmenting it in, in a way too early, I think is is just really, really challenging. Yeah. I mean, I think the, just kind of the, the title of fractional CRO, the CRO just kind of puts a, a level on that. That's, that's too high for that, the stage of business at that point in time. And so, I mean, I'm a fan of, of having some fractional sales leaders in there or even sellers um, to try to have a lower cost for entry to, to build out some of those frameworks and those motions and, and uh, the overall go-to-market plays. But, you know, from a, a CRO perspective, I mean, I haven't been involved in an organization where we had a CRO before, you know, 25 to $30 million in ARR, let alone trying to kick off, you know, your first million. And so I think there's some fundamental things you can use maybe from an advisory perspective uh, to try to get some some input on how to build some of those early programs and motions, but you really need someone in the trenches in order to get things done at that early stage. Yeah. So Sean, you bring up a good point. Let's be fair to Dale here a little bit. Um, what, what are those thresholds where it starts to make some sense? Because, you know, we're a little biased in that we're talking about our world of early stage startups, we're working in that 500K to maybe two to three million in ARR. Where does that start to make a little bit more sense? Is it really that 25 million or are there shades of gray in there? Well, and also what is a CRO, right? Like, I think it's a really interesting move, um, which, you know, for some reason has come up in a, in a ton of conversations lately, like La Latney uh, and over at Six Cents and kind of her, her, promotion or, or I guess it'd be a lateral move um, from CMO to CRO. Like what is a CRO these days in, in you guys' opinion? I mean, in, in my experience, they oversee all of the revenue function, which would include post-sales, account management, a lot of times partnerships or anything in the ecosystem, and then, you know, direct sales as well. And that, and, and they're thinking strategically and marketing, yeah, of course. And so they're thinking strategically about the entire go-to-market arm of the business, which is, you know, again, Josh pointed in our world, like, it seems very small for them to be just focused on the initial go-to-market efforts without even really having much of a marketing arm or, or really anything post-sales. And so I think, you know, but each one, each each organization has their own flavor. I've seen marketing CMOs and CROs work independently of each other as well. Well, and that that's kind of what I was alluding to there. Like, I think the partnership aspect is one area where this could potentially work for an organization. Like if no one else in the org is, really understands what it means to build out a partner ecosystem, and you can add that, get some sales leadership, some strategy, so, you know, marketing horsepower. If you can get a lot within that fractional leader, like that may change that answer a little bit. But, you know, at the same time, what I also find is like, no one really knows what good looks like in terms of like an integrated partnership revenue marketing motion. And so, you know, that that's, you're kind of unicorn hunting to some degree out there. Uh, i.e. like also willing to do this fractionally. Yeah. And I keep going back, you know, if we, if we even go back to that quota carrying nature of what you need at this early stage, I think a lot of times folks see startup and they go title chasing a little bit. 
like, oh, because it's a startup, I can get my first VP title or director title or, what, or whatever that may be. But does it really matter? Like, what what are you in for, right? Like, are you into mm-hmm. grow something, <clears throat> make the company grow, therefore you're going to grow. If you're carrying a bag, you're going to make more money. Like, I don't know. I think people get too caught up in title chasing. And then even the, the concept of fractional CRO fits into that. Like, okay, you've got all this experience. Now you can be a CRO for a dozen companies at once. Is that is that realistic? You know, I, I, I'd shit on this topic a lot as well, but like, it's totally hypocritical of me because like, like I got some early advice from a boss of mine who was like, take title in lieu of, of money early on. And so like, if you know, you're not going to be at that organization for five years, you know, maybe it's a two or three year run. Like I do think it's, you know, it's hard to shit all over the concept completely because once you, you know, but here's the challenge, right? Like that advice was given through the lens of like 15 years ago, corporate ladder climbing to where right. you worked at, you know, probably a mid or enterprise level organization. And if, if that logo parity and, and title are there, then yes, like you've now changed the trajectory of, of your career. To your point, if I'm dealing with 500K and ARR and I'm the CRO, like that's pretty transparent these days, right? Like tell, tell me how that organization did. Like, oh, I can look at their LinkedIn. I can look at their website. I, I, I can see that, you know, they had a, a bad outcome. Like people could triangulate those pretty quickly. So I think the the age old, like I work at Coca-Cola or Frito-Lay and, you know, I'm going to take title as, as my next step is much different than what we're seeing in the startup landscape. So I, long story short, I don't think it does anyone any favors when the title and the organization size are out of parity. Yeah, yeah, it's like in, like in baking where everyone's a vice president, right? Uh, right. And uh, but I do think so. I will just to counterpoint that a little bit. There is a threshold where title matters enough to get a meeting. So you can't just be labeled AE, no, like, and that even though you're running the sales organization and go in and, and be able to you know knock on the door of, of another VP um, and try to get them to take a meeting. So I think there's you know there's that ambiguous head up right that we all put on labels on in, in startup world which gives you the flexibility to be promoted to a director or it gives you the, the flexibility to promote them to a VP, right? It's kind of this, hey, you're going to run things for now and see how it goes. So I think there's a little bit of clout that has to be put on it. But to your point, like, I mean, it's function, right? It's if you're running the thing, you're running the thing. I think it doesn't matter as much. Uh, you just have to be careful that you you learn faster than your experiences so that when it becomes time to layer, that you're not layered, that you become that next layer. Yeah, for sure. No, I get, I get that. All right. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, we've got Manoj Bhatia. What verticals get you guys the most pumped up? Guys, what are we talking about? This I'm pumped up just thinking about it. I just love pumped up verticals. <laughs> uh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, like we always say B2B vertical SaaS. And I mean, like we're really what we're saying is like, is there, you know, a niche that we can win and it ties in with the partner focus, you know, it, it just in such a, a streamlined manner and, and really they go like hand in glove. And there's, of course, the bias of that is most of our historic experience as well. Um, and so I think, you know, air, verticals that are also hot on top of that or have, you know, kind of those, those pain points that are starting to be disrupted, um, or that have a lot of optionality in, in terms of disruption. I think healthcare, like not like large, like health system, like I think specialty, like we, we just, you know, closed a, a dental 
um, Portco. I, I think that space has some real challenges, like medical on the whole um, is facing a huge staffing issue. So you're seeing all these education uh, startups kind of come into the space. You're seeing, you know, the on the opposite side, automation of workflow in uh, integration of systems that have largely been paper pushing in the past. So I think, you know, specialty medical healthcare is a great one. Manufacturing, uh, transportation slash fleet management. We've got one of those construction. Um, I think those are some, some hot buttons that, you know, normally perk up our, our eyebrows a bit. Yeah. I mean, just when you think about vertical SaaS in general, there's some advantages, um, specifically on there being, being a lack of competitors. Um, usually it's pretty, pretty finite list of competitors since they're all doing something very niche. Uh, well, yeah, you can niche. also disqualify like the massive competitor, right? right? You know what I mean? Like, um, shit, I just sat through the, uh, uh, stage two, uh, LP West coast LP meeting uh, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, God, I'm going to space the name of the company. So that'd be, uh, but anyway, like Salesforce, you know, huge horizontal solution and, and to some extent eating the world. And then I, I got to look this up. Um, uh, but the you know, organization comes in and specializes, or, you know, from a vertical standpoint, and, and they've been massively successful in, in penetrating those verticals because everyone was spending so much in customization and custom implementation, right? Like, it's to, so just to, to, you know, completely alleviate that huge expense and lift, it was, it was a huge win for them. And I think that's why uh, vertical is so powerful because even though you may be a startup, you've got that proprietary knowledge from from those you know lanes and and you could win against a salesforce or a microsoft you know not easily but it's possible yeah i think yeah, a, I mean, you really get to understand your customer better right because you're you have a persona a specific persona and then you know the other piece that i think you mentioned earlier was that like from a partner perspective there's a way higher propensity to find really deep uh partners so than successful partners in in vertical just because they're hyper focused on the exact same niche that you are yeah, for sure. And I think with verticals, there's always a fine balance of what's ripe for disruption and what can actually be disrupted. Like how laggard are they really that they're going to embrace mm -hmm. technology? And a good example of that is I'm an advisor for a software company that sells into commercial real estate brokers. Like these folks are dinosaurs and they all make money, right? Like the bad ones make a quarter million a year. The good ones make like 20 million a year. Like we're we've got this just like low barrier. And when you bring them new technology, it's like, uh, is this going to make me more money? Really? Like I have to right. do something different. So it's really hard from an adoption standpoint, right? Like you've got to overcome some adoption barriers. And like, I know Justin and I both grew up in construction families, right? Like spending our summer swinging a hammer, sweeping out job sites type of thing. So we're naturally drawn to construction tech. We've seen a Which fair everyone amount. should do for a summer, by the way. Oh man. <laughs> it, it teaches you what you don't want to do. Yeah. Right. So uh, I remember the name. I'd be remiss not to mention. So it, it, it's Velocity, which, you know, like we've all seen like that massive growth story. And 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 David was there speaking to the group and like the impetus for the business, which I just find so powerful and, and why I love Vertical so much. Like they had an idea to, you know, like, hey, there's a massive opportunity from a niche in a, in a vertical perspective. Let's go out to Dreamforce. And this is like Dreamforce. I think like 06, 07, somewhere around there and looks for partners that, you know, that we could potentially buy and like slingshot ourselves into the space. And no one was there like in that sea. And like, I, I was at Dreamforce in, in those years and like Dreamforce was still big back then. Like now it's obviously monstrous, but 
like none of them had customized the application for specific verticals. And so like just such a massive opportunity there. And I think at the same time, like founders who have sat in the seat of their buyer, they've seen that problem firsthand to the point, like, you know, we're looking at a, a construction startup in the Southeast and, you know, this dude is his former buyer, right? Like what better seat to sit in um, than being able to, to see those pain points firsthand and, and design something that's really going to have market traction. Yeah, and to your point, like I don't think anyone today would say, hey, go get in the CRM space. But we have a great example here in the Phoenix area of a CRM startup that sells into non-for-profits and they are doing extremely well, right? Like they're completely verticalized. They only do one thing. They know the nuance of fundraising, getting, you know, what we call limited partners, but, you know, sponsors or whatever, you, you know, angels, whatever you want to call them. I mean, it's, and they're just doing a tremendous job of growing their business. It's funny, I talked to their CRO yesterday, and since this is a nearbound topic, he said that he's literally rolled out the lead MD partner playbook from when we were in our early days. And, you know, I was very humbling to hear that, you know, we were enough of an influence at that point to, to use that model and really roll it out. And he said something super poignant. He's like, it's not a partner team. We don't have a partner team. It literally is from our executive team, it is to our team. team to our marketing team, to our CS team. Like it's gotta be ingrained. He goes, we have challenges for sure, but it's slowly getting every team bought into the concept. Yeah. I mean, to the point of like, no one wants to start a CRM company. Like I actually think for the first time we're, we're seeing that playing field, like totally level from an AI perspective, like whoever can actually remove CRM from CRM is, is, going to have a huge, you know, opportunity here, but not to get off track, but you know, that, that is the reason why I am concerned for like this whole partner led ecosystem nearbound, whatever you want to call it movement is because that is the critical ingredient. And you cannot do this from a midpoint in the organization. You can't do it at the bottom of the organization, which sorry, organizations do have hierarchies, like unless that's being driven from the top, it's not going to work or at least yeah. not work in, in, you know, to its fullest potential. Yeah, I totally agree. It's an organizational edict. It's, it's not a team. It's not a motion. It's not anything like that. It really does have to matriculate all the way down through the organization and have to not to be too tactical, but plays at every level, right? Like here's how we execute and elevate partners that are across. The Were we not giving Sean enough love? Maybe not. Like, he's, he, he, he's, he dropped out the out. podcast. Wow. Dude. He's like, dude, you guys suck. I need some more yeah, FaceTime rejection involved in this is is not good i'm sure all right so this is maybe my favorite question coming from dia costa who i think he's been in the ecosystem forever as long as we have we've seen his face pop around on linkedin good dude any partner nightmare stories uh gray i know you've got some i certainly have my own as well but i'll let you kick it off god where do you start on a topic like this i mean the I think there's a couple big things that, that come to mind that are just recurring and problematic. I think first and foremost, like, and everyone talks about this, like threading or being single threaded within a partner, like B2B hiring and firing is just so rampant. Right. And so like, I feel like I built the same partnerships over and over and over again. And to some extent it is a nightmare and it's just like, or, we're doing this again, even if you're like well distributed throughout that organization, like focuses change, like you've got to resell your value. It, like if you're focused on the field level, which you absolutely should be, you know, those folks are going to uh, at least change territories, probably change roles and, and 
most often change jobs as well. And so like just the amount of curation that goes into that and, and, you know, being a broken record stuck on repeat is, is in and of itself daunting, but you know, my big challenge is always sourced revenue. Right. And the, and the, the, just the huge misalignment that that causes in terms of like what we're focused on. And we, you know, we talked about this having to be top down, like partner fit and like cultural alignment. Like, are we doing something together for the customer and whether we've got one or a million of them, if we've done that like research and we understand like we are more valuable together, we're going to take a solution to market. Um, that is something that like has to be focused on the customer. It can't be focused on how much revenue have you given me lately. Um, and so I think, you know, we've gone through just nightmare scenarios of never getting off the, the starting line there. And, you know, like folks that worked for me would just like pull their hair out, you know, Salesforce is a big violator of this these days with, with how large they are. And I think if there's, you know, aspects to that organization that ultimately make it ripe, you know, to have the disruptor be disrupted, it is the kind of cogs that have been put into that bureaucratic machine that make it impossible for, you know, maybe a best in class solution. We just talked about AI, right? Like the, the field really is kind of starting to be primed for leveling and, you know, tomorrow's unicorn billion dollar business is going to start somewhere. And if you don't have the open arms to, you know, to number one, understand what the landscape is doing, where you're weak, where you, where you could be augmented, whether they, you know, are just a PowerPoint deck, right? Like you've got to have some, some visibility into that notion. And then as they start getting traction, like you've got to be proactive in staying relevant. And I think every business goes through that, that life cycle to where it's like, all right, we're open to anything. Oh, we're starting to get more restrictive. Boom. Now it's this partner program that like no one can get through unless you're of, you know, similar or equal size and you've got like revenue that you're going to give them on a plate. Um, that is, I mean, just like I go into specifics, but we'd be all here all day, like such a disappointment, quite frankly, because I think there's so much opportunity if you are focused on the customer and what you can jointly do together, you, that barrier of, of sourced revenue is just, again, a fucking nightmare. Well, I've got uh, Sean. Welcome back. I sorry we weren't giving you uh, FaceTime and and we power went out. Conversation. My uh, my internet reset. Yeah. So we're talking about uh, partner horror stories, and you know Justin's mm -hmm. kind of giving the overall narrative. I'm going to give two explicit examples, and I'm I'm just going to throw these companies under the bus. Why not? So please say enough starts with an L. Uh, two of them start with an S, uh, and, no. and Sean and Sean was employed with one of them at one time. So, <laughs> oh, no. the, the, the first is is the first is Salesforce, right? Which we all know could be a pain in the ass. But we had a consulting engagement for a company, and our job was to build their tech stack, right? So to curate the entire what's the the marketing and sales uh, uh, tech stack going to look like. We recommended Salesforce and Marketo from a CRM and marketing automation standpoint. We get assigned to our AE, and this just shows you, you know, how deep the trust thing has to be. Um, we tell the AE, listen, we we've already scoped this whole thing out. It should be a pretty easy slam dunk deal for you for Salesforce. Our only ask is please don't bring up Pardot. Like we we can't bring up Pardot. We don't want to derail anything and, and whatnot. So make the intro. They do a sidebar car. First thing they do is bring up. Pardot. Well, it's important to note they had already reviewed Pardot in Marketo, right? Correct. Like, and made a different decision and they're still beating this drum. Yeah, so they, they first thing they do is they bring up Pardot. 
And the second thing they do is recommend they don't work with us and they use their professional services team in order to, <laughs> or, or one of their other partners to do, to do this implementation. So that, that's a, a short story for what turned up to be a complete nightmare. And then the other, and Sean, I don't know what your involvement was at this point in the sales loft uh, ecosystem, but we were working with them to partner on outsourcing implementations to lead up uh -huh. in a little bit more of a white label manner. And I can't remember who the team was at that time, but I can tell you, went, but I'm not going to mention his name. <laughs> you know, we went through the certifications, we went through the trainings, we got our team ready to take on, I think we had agreed on something contractually like five implementations a month or something to get started pretty lightweight and we weren't they weren't charging a lot of money for them so we weren't making a ton of money yep. it was just really a play to start to build relationships within sales loft more broadly and so a month or so goes by and i'm like man we really haven't seen any any action you know we, we signed a contract for this stuff what's going on and i get a call that says uh we've decided we're not going to do this anymore we're only sending implementations to partners that are sending us revenue and I'm like, wait, what? That's that's not in the deal. Like, what? Yeah. I mean, we certainly want to get that way, but right now, this is purely an implementation. You know, it's our job to kind of take these two thousand dollar deals and turn them into something, right? right. Like, uh, yeah. So that was kind of a nightmare story. We we committed quite a bit of resource internally to get these folks, you know, trained and onboarded and all that kind of thing to do this job, which wasn't going to pay us a lot. It was still our job to, you know, go sell yeah. more. Yeah. And that's the third prong right there, right? Like the over index on logos over expansion revenue, right? Like there's so much opportunity to create maturity within platforms. And like, we've seen this with almost every tech partner that we worked with. Um, I'll call out Drift a bit because they, you know, Drift has gone through so many iterations of trying to move up market and into the enterprise. And they had some real friction points because their solution is so great, so easy. You can flip it onto a site and suddenly you're doing the lowest common denominator, right? Like yeah. you're, you, you can now conversationally uh, uh, interface with someone. But their big challenge was they couldn't get anyone to get like super mature and like running different playbooks and customization and, 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 you know, personalizing at a, at a deep level. And so similar type of friction point, right? Like now we did have a good long-term partnership with Drift and we did many implementations for them, but the, like the lack of focus there and the more on like, all right, let's go win some new net new deals together for both parties. We're not, neither of us have a relationship. We're both going in cold. Like that's, we are frogging the value of partnerships, right? Like we should start where one of us has a customer relationship and expand there. And in fact, all of our, I think, not all of, but the majority of our success from a new revenue perspective with Drift was within our customer base, right? right? Like rarely going out and trying to sell into a cold environment where we don't have that trust curated on all one side. I, yeah, I mean, we helped them sell one of their biggest enterprise deals ever because they're one of our customers and we helped them inside track it, come up with the rollout plan, you know, that whole thing. And it was a great joint sales cycle. The AE was awesome. Their enablement team was awesome. Our team was awesome. It was a really, really good win. And we didn't frankly repeat that enough. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm just going to rebuttal the experience that you had at, because <laughs> uh, I know exactly what time period that was. So, um, and this is, this is kind of a, uh, I mean, this is, will be relevant to everyone, but you know, we spun up that services side of our partnership ecosystem based purely off need of not having enough human bodies internally to onboard the amount or implement the amount of customers we're bringing on. 
yep. which was a terrible way to start it. Now you can use partnerships to do that, but it was it was run underneath the success org. It wasn't part of greater partnerships yet, and there was no co- there was no really a goal beyond hey we just need to off we don't have enough people to do this. Let's get some other people to do this, and so it started to fall apart when we were what we ended up doing was paying the partners to do this, and we weren't making any money off the services revenue, our own services revenue. Um, and then we were, we would only do it with a select few that basically a lot of folks had the same experience that you all did where we, we kind of, it was like, we put the, the carrot out in front there and then pulled it and then changed the goals and whatever. And, and what, what we ended up looking back on is like, what we wanted was more expansion revenue and we wanted, and that's, that's what we ended up driving towards. So it ended up going rolled under there. Um, but from another nightmare story, just any, you know, lesson to other folks around where partnerships reports into during the time that we were building this thing, uh, I, I would either report it to the CEO, the CRO, the C, um, CMO. So each one had very different um, goals for what the organization should do, the partnership organization, or different motivations. And so a couple of the nightmare stories was reporting to CMO for one part of, of a strategic partnership and then then the CRO and then having everything switch in the middle of it. And I, I kind of want to address like a, uh, an experience that was when you have a CMO in charge of or leading partnerships. A lot of times they're looking for what they call quote unquote strategic partners, which is really just logos or their homies that are other CMOs and they want to announce some things together. And so what ends up is this immaterial partnership where you just kind of talk about each other all the time. You just promote each other. You do, you're just kind of, you know, you're, you're, you give each other pats on the back and it really goes nowhere. You're like, hey, so-and-so is aligned with this organization. And I wish I could drop names here because you would understand why it made absolutely no sense. But we had great logos sit next to each other. We do a bunch of content together. We put each other on stage. Each CMO would be on each other's conference stage, whatnot. And so, and then you're running around just having to do all this busy work, which really was just a content goal. And then when you switch that over to the CRO's perspective, they just want deals. So they don't really care what you're doing. They don't care if you're if you're announcing things together, you're doing integration. They want their VPs to be aligned with each other. They want to be swapping polls back and forth, right? And so then it gets really uh, tactical with like how we're going to go to market together, which does get results. But at the same time, they're just looking for deal intros. And if they're not getting it, then they're not wasting their time with those relationships either. And so, and then that gets ingrained into the sales folks head. And, and all of a sudden you've got these massive different priorities from different edges of the of the organization. And you really can't get much traction going forward and the things fall apart. And I think, you know, I think it's really something that people should think about is, is what you label strategic relationships and what strategic partnerships, because just because it's a cool logo doesn't make it strategic. And just because, you know, it would sound good to go promote it together doesn't mean it's actually going to drive revenue. Yeah. I mean, the unfortunate part about that is like, it's such a critical reminder on, you know, partnerships cannot be like a work on someone's ass it, like in in one section of the business right like it has right. to be umbrella it has to be driven by the ceo and like most things the ceo has to tailor the goals for each you know uh, uh division or, or functional unit of the business in line with what they can support right but they all have to come together on overall metrics and i think you know like just really putting out some fundamental things like partner attachment as like Mm -hmm. one of the ultimate goals of the organization and something that we're going to measure and actually, you know, starts even get into the the next question that we got. But like when you create just fundamental visibilities like that and say like, this is going to be not only what we capture, but how we look at the world. This is our lens. How many partners of ours are they using? How many have we attached? And then again, waterfall those, those KPIs down. So yeah, marketing, you can own, campaigns you can own 
top of funnel, you can own awareness and brand, but everyone's got to work together. So those, those, you know, uh, uh, components click. Remember the, uh, Marketo in four strategic partnership. Oh yeah. What the, hell the, the what thing? the hell is in four <laughs> new partnership? Yeah. That yeah. I mean, the, 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 that that's, you know, like, and it's funny cause it, it passes the sniff test on, on so many aspects, right? Like we are losing to a company that has an embedded CRM. We need a CRM partner, but whoops, we forgot to really understand that none of our existing customer base uses that CRM. You know, it was aspirational in terms of like, oh yeah, we want to compete in a new area, but you've got to look at who serves your customer today, as well as who serves the area that you want to expand into, or all of your, you know, employees and your reps just sit there scratching their head saying like, how am I supposed to sell this, you know, into Mm -hmm. the patch that I'm used to? All right. Last one from Patricia Bush. And it's a... I wish I had more context to this question, so we'll do our best, but how do you calculate the cost of not having data? What is the cost to a company when they do not know how to capture visibility? So uh, who wants yeah, to jump I, in there? I think this, just for the context, I think this came on the heels of, of obviously like the KPIs conversation yes. that we were having yeah. in terms of, um, you know, collecting that data and, you know, like that, I'll just throw out a quick answer because I've been pretty wordy here. Like, you have to create an organizational edict to capture that data, right? right? And there are ways to augment that. You know, I think we mentioned some technographic data providers out there, which pretty much everyone is these days. Everyone's bolting in the, the same information. Um, but like capture what you can and then like, what can you do organizationally, like within your CS team, right? Like make that one of their fundamental goals for that, that quarter or that half. Like we are going to understand the tech stack of our existing customers. And we're going to use that to power the partner team, right? Um, so whether you got it and it's dirty or you don't have it, like the focus is, is I think where, where you have to start, right? Like we have to have a, an area to collect this and we've got to align our teams around its collection. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you're not reinventing the wheel here. A lot of these metrics already exist. Um, you know, from a, if you think about it, just like a lead source, you would just map the same things that marketing's doing. If you think about it as an outbound, trying to get new, that new partners, think about it like an SDR and AE in that cycle as well. And you can just kind of, I mean, in my experience, I usually just duplicate a lot of the other, you know, dashboards that already exist and, and try to create fields for those that are specific to what we're trying to accomplish and the stages that we're trying to, to do. But, you know, you run it just like you would anything else. And then you, you push them up and, and share those things and make them publicly known so people can see progress. Because I think the stip, you know, the stigma with partnerships historically is that it's, a, you know, a couple people just going to get coffee and talking about things that they could do or grabbing happy hours and grabbing beers. and like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And then there's like six to eight months to a year of nothing happening. Right. And so if you can start to show the progress, you know, as, as incremental as it may be, at least people understand that you're actually doing something. Um, and then from there you can start, you know, um, making all the successes publicly. And that's what I mean. I think the only net new thing that you have to bolt in to understand the value of a partner program is partner attachment. And I just literally mean like what partners are operating in each of your prospects and each of your clients. And then it's just a lens to say, all right, well, how's our pipeline functioning today? How's our partner pipeline functioning where we know we have, you know, a, an engaged partner, you know, within that deal. And I guarantee if you're running any semblance of a su- successful partner motion, the partner lensed KPI, whatever it happens to be, will outperform the non-partner lens KPI. Like I really do think it's that simple. 
Yeah, I think explicitly the cost is not knowing, right? What what have you used to always to say, Justin, when we were doing an assessment with an organization? Well, not having the ability to benchmark is a benchmark in itself, right? So it's just that, right? Like if you can't measure it, that's the cost, right? You have no ability to understand what's working and what's not. So I think that's the that's the simple answer, even though it's not a hard hard number. But I mean, you that are so focused on benchmarks rarely have them. Like, what is this going to yield in terms of like pipeline methods? Like, well, let me explain to me what your, how your pipeline performs today. Well, that's our problem. We, Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, right. what's, all right, we're looking at what, what are you going to be to that? Like a, yeah. a feeling? Yeah. I mean, the ultimate cost of not having data is that things will just won't get off the ground. Right. You can't anecdotally say, I mean, I think anyone will anecdotally say, hey, yeah, partnership program sounds great. It'll help us grow revenue. But unless you have something to prove it, and when you ask for those hard dollars, in order to invest in that program and to get those things up and running from a resources perspective, then they're going to want to know where where is where we're going to remove the needle, right? And that's where you have to have data to back it up. Well, you're exactly right. I think that is or the succinct answer to this. Like the cost of not having data is degradation of trust. Yep, right there. If you can't point to something, like you can't convince other people to do fill the blank. I mean, look at our firm as an example. We're tiny, right? It's the three of us. We have Salesforce. Every time we talk to another venture capital firm, we capture that conversation, including some key things we want to know. Mm -hmm. We want to know what size checks do they write? We want to know what verticals they're interested in. We want to know what stage they do. Those are the data points that we have in our CRM so that if we want to, if we run into someone that says, oh, hey, I'm looking to raise a series A in the construction vertical and I need a $5 million check, we can run a report and see who falls into that bucket. Right. And then we can send that deal to our partner. Like, and that, that, that's all about like, what do you want to, to do as an organization and building that, that data strategy aligned to your organizational strategy and where that gets off track is, you know, where everyone in the org isn't aligned around the same, you know, ultimate mission. And, you know, like that's again, alignment and, and like top down edict is, um, something that is so, you know, sh should be streamlined in, in early stage. And, you know, the further away that we get from, from that alignment as we grow, I mean, it's, it, again, it's, it, it turns into all the problems that we've been discussing. Yep. Yeah. Well guys, this was an awesome conversation. A big thank you to Jared and Isaac for inviting us to speak at the Nearbound Summit. We had a blast. Hopefully this is a cool format for everybody who was on and getting your questions answered. Uh, I think it made for a really lively discussion between the three of us. And I'll dig yeah, if you've got our... questions, pop them in the the, yeah. the comments here, you know, or shoot us a note. Right, like our information's everywhere. Yeah. We're not hard to find. Um, would love to answer more like real world questions. Yeah, we can make this show as relevant to you as you possibly could want it to be. So if this is your first time listening because you're coming from the Nearbout Summit, thank you for coming and checking us out. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe. It goes out weekly across all the major podcast platforms on LinkedIn and YouTube. So we're out there and please send your questions to us in any format you can find LinkedIn on our website, whatever it may be. And until next time, thanks to you for joining the Cheat Code.